Good morning and welcome to the Retail Strategies webinar series. Excited to have you all on the call today about a very interesting topic. There's been a lot of discussion about food halls over the last five and ten years, and that discussion just continues to evolve. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Back on the way. Sorry about that. Not sure what happened, but here we go. <laughs> so that discussion continues to evolve about food halls. We have a fantastic panel here today with us. It's so exciting. I mean, you're talking about true experts in the industry that we have, and we really want to make this webinar very interactive with you as participants. So this is a little bit different than some of the webinars we've done in the past where we hold our questions to the end. What we're going to do in this case is for you to be involved throughout the entire course of this for the dialogue. Um, we're going to take questions as they come, so please use that question box on the right or the chat box and a lot of you have experience and knowledge in food halls as well so it's not only about questions feel free to share those you will all be muted as participants so just feel free to type those and all of us as the panelists will be able to see them as we go through this webinar so let me go ahead and get started I think you're going to be so impressed with the panelists that we have here with us today um, just their bios and their background is are just tremendous in their experience in this space. So let me give you a high level overview. I'm not gonna take a deep dive on, on all their bios, but just wanna give you a sampling of who we're visiting with here today. Uh, first, we're gonna start with Phil Colicchio. Phil started Colicchio Consulting back in 2005, and he has worldwide experience working with hotels, resorts, mixed use developments. And in 2018, Cushman and Wakefield acquired Colicchio Consulting, and they work together right now as the leading food and beverage consultants on an international basis in real estate. So extremely well recognized across the world. They're bringing that expertise to us today. I don't know how Phil fits it all in because he's also been an attorney. He's represented more than 50 James Beard Foundation Award winners, and he's also a faculty member at the Culinary Institute of America. So an attorney, educator and consultant. Uh, so I feel confident we can throw any question we want at Phil and he will be able to handle it uh, with knowledge and wit. We also have... <laughs> right, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Lacey. And thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Retail Strategies, for having us. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you with us today. And we're going to also introduce Trip Snick. So Tripp has a lot of experience. You can see that he is just a true entrepreneur in his experience. So he was the co-founder of hotelme.com, which was an online review service. And he sold that in 2014 to Gannett. Before that, he was the co-founder of TIG Global and sold that in 2009 to Micros with a tremendous return to the investors. He's also been the VP of Asset Management at Thayer Lodging Group, where he managed 23 high-end hotels that were valued at about $2 billion. 
has his master's from Michigan State and MBA at R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. He's also on the advisory board for Cornell Center for Hospitality Research and a board member at the School of Hotel Management at Auburn University. So again, another phenomenal entrepreneur, very well experienced in this space. And finally, we have not only somebody I've followed since I first got in the industry, also a dear friend, we have Garrick Brown, the Vice President of Retail Intelligence for Cushman and Wakefield. He leads the retail real estate um, analysis for Cushman and Wakefield. He's often quoted in the Wall Street Journal, several business journals across the country, has been interviewed on um, NBC News, Nightly News, CNBC News, NPR, you go on and on about all the media really leans on Garrick for his expertise. He's published multiple white papers on very pertinent real estate issues and trends that are happening in the marketplace, and he's always ahead of the trends that are hitting us. So fantastic white papers. And what I love about Garrick is the way he delivers the information. You know, sometimes uh, if it is a an economist or an analyst, then the delivery can be a, a bit dry. And that's certainly not the case with Garrick. He has a really creative and entertaining way to deliver all this information. He's been the keynote speaker at ICSE, NAOP, SIOR, ULI, and on and on several of highly recognized and reputable organizations across the country. So again, just a high level overview of our panelists that we have here with us today. And we feel so honored to have them to talk about food halls. I mean, what we're prepared to talk about are really what is a food hall? What does it do for communities and placemaking, not just the operations of the food hall, but also how that impacts the community and how you can work together on that. We're going to talk about the changes we've seen in restaurants pre-COVID, during COVID, and then estimates for post-COVID that are happening on the operations side of restaurants, and also talk about how restaurants have highly impacted the real estate of things. I mean, it's, that's a substantial change. Um, used to, it was the department stores that would anchor shopping centers, and now it's the restaurants. And so this is a, just a category that everybody loves. We all consider ourselves experts and foodies because we love to eat, right? So it's a very popular topic and I think very relevant for our current situation, the pandemic that we're in right now, the threat that it poses on our restaurants and our communities, and just really the uniqueness of our communities comes from those restaurants, those places we eat. It, it drives tourism, it drives quality of life, it drives communities. So what can we do to work together, public sector and private sector, to ensure the security of this long-term through the other side of the pandemic? So let's go ahead and just start with a very simple question to get us warmed up. Phil, what is a food hall and how is it different from a food court? Sure. Well, uh, Lacey, probably the, the best way to describe what a food hall is, is to, is to talk about what it's not, because um, we believe that the minute that you begin to try to define something, you limit what it can be. So what I can tell you that it 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 is not. If if you find a uh, a Sabaro or a uh, Burger King or a chain restaurant uh, within a, a collection of 
uh, of food and beverage offerings, you can pretty much you can pretty much guess that it's not a food hall. Um, usually, uh, the common components that we see in food halls are are under one roof or or, or under one tent. You know, an environment. We see a, a variety of, of artisanal offerings, usually that are you know artisanal foods, uh, often uh, crafted beers, uh, anything that is regional and local. Um, that is non-chain, uh, if they're working, uh, and operating together, um, in one sort of, um, uh, one sort of marketplace, uh, then you've got yourself a food hall. And, uh, all of our listeners who are part of municipalities and, 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 and county regions shouldn't be concerned about size. Um, micro food halls uh, are are equally wonderful uh, and equally profitable, frankly. Well, and, um, uh, Bill, as, so as large this, food halls. Yeah. This is this is Garrick, and uh, yeah. One thing that's important to note is that it keeps evolving. Uh, you know, you bet. When I first got into the trend uh a number of years back it was thought of as just being a a new york san francisco la thing obviously you need some density but but you know that focus on independence i think is 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 a big part of it it's about authenticity um mm -hmm. why the chains don't work so well typically when when they go in but you know it's not just a chef driven thing anymore which uh I'm sure we're going to get into some more detail about that, you know, but I think one of the critical thing is, is a home to independent restaurants and, and the impacts mm -hmm. of COVID. It's the independents that are really getting killed. And, um, and, and that's, that's one of the things though, I think that what makes the food hall also different. It's, it's not, it's also about the model. The model is radically different uh, on the operational side the financial side than than a typical food court right right the economic model right, right. and that's uh trip jump in yeah I, we'll get there i think i think um let's let's uh th this is this is an important slide i think for garrick here well it's really challenging unfortunately yeah. my friends are starting to call me dr doom uh which really sucks uh but the reality is that to say that COVID's a crisis to retail, to restaurants, that's a gross understatement. Um, when I go through and I add up, you know, beyond just the restaurant industry, uh, just the potential amount of space that's going to be coming back to the market. And, you know, we're, we're at a point now where major chain bankruptcies are coming pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, we we could be looking at 20% of our retail space by the time this is over returning to market. Uh, and, and that said, it's restaurants are taking, really taking a brunt of a lot of this and it's got nothing to do with consumer demand. Um, exactly. You know, that's, that's, that's the thing is, is it the vulnerabilities of restaurants have more to do with small business vulnerability 
But if you just look at it, and these these are rough estimate numbers, you know, the National Restaurant Association says there's a million restaurants, but they'll throw in food trucks, they'll throw in catering guys and all that, right? But if if we go with these basic assumptions, for example, uh, if you're a QSR or fast food, you already had 70% of your business going through your drive-through windows or you know, people people don't sit around typically and and stay for the ambiance of Wendy's. Okay, uh, it's it's about take home or take out. Mm-hmm. So those guys are a little bit better positioned. But if you go to the other other end of the spectrum, fine dining, it's all about the experience. Well, think of it this way: you've got high ticket and a sharp, sharp, sharp recessionary environment. Uh, you've got Fine dining, which really drives a lot on business expense spending, which that's not happening. Travel, that's not happening. So if you just make the assumption then that by the time we're done with this, 50% of fine dining players go down. And by the way, Landry's, which you know operates Morton's, slew of other right. concepts, they haven't paid any of their suppliers and going on 100 days. Uh, they're on the bankruptcy watch list. You know. 50% failure rate is is probably likely. Uh, casual dining, you know, especially in the places that weren't hit by the pandemic at first, but now are feeling a pain. You know, a lot of those guys were doing okay. I mean, look, Olive Garden's still fine, but, you know, Bloomin' Brands is on the edge of bankruptcy. Uh, Chili's, Applebee's, IHOP, all on the edge of bankruptcy, deep on bankruptcy watch lists. And, and this casual dining and mid-range, Mid-range is more your independent players. It's the local pizza place everyone in town's been going to for 20, 30 years, but it's a mom and pop. If we look at that sector, which is the biggest, if it's a 25% failure rate, which, which by the way, the restaurant industry itself has gloomier numbers than this, that's 90, 98,000 businesses. You know, fast casual hottest thing going and look chipotle's doing fine they've got their chipotle's going so they're, they're going into drive-through and and they're still planning on growing but away from a few chains most of this is independent small businesses and and while they were eating the lunch of casual dining before the, the ability for small businesses to survive this because it's not just the lockdowns how many businesses can survive a 20 to 50 percent revenue drop over a sustained period. You know, we've got a lot of businesses that have reopened <laughs> lockdown that are mortally wounded unless either more aid happens or fast track of zoning. So maybe they can create a drive-through window or cut out a hole in the <laughs> wall for take takeout. Cause sadly we're gonna be stuck with with the pandemic <laughs> for a while. Um, so but, Garrick, Garrick, yeah. this is this is Phil. So, so like like any great novel or any great symphony, right? We 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 have to we have to bring the listener and the reader into a into a moment of uh, of realizing that there is a, a there's a real problem to be solved here, right? Yeah. And so, right for our colleagues on the phone or on the on the on the webinar um, who are with municipalities and, 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 and local economic development groups. Um, this is not meant to scare you senseless. This is meant to 
make sure that you are woke <laughs> as it relates to where this is going because there is a path. Um, and I think that's, that's an important component, you know, for how we move through these, uh, uh, through these, these slides that we're going to go through. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, we, Lacey, let's, let's, let's move to the path, yeah, right? To yeah, to jump in and Garrick, thank you for for sharing the data and the numbers behind this uh, sobering reality of the situation at hand. I mean, this is this is real information. I mean, we as community leaders, your your first goal is the safety right of your community, and and one once you've established the safety, then the next thing that you really need to pay attention to is stabilizing your economy. So all these shutdowns are having a substantial impact on our businesses and particularly our restaurants um, so there they are at risk and I and think that's why we wanted to have this webinar with the experts on it is to challenge you to get creative with potential solutions to think about something you haven't thought about before and food halls might be the answer of something new that you haven't done before that can really help the survival of restaurants and that's that's why we want to really take a look at this so mm -hmm. if you look at the restaurants that are at risk and getting back to the idea of um, really the artisan restaurants being the character of our communities then let's look at the footprints of what we've seen in restaurants um trip do you want to take this one what's the threat to commercial real estate so we talked about the brands in the restaurants but how has the actual real estate side of, of things changed in and um, given the restaurants pre-pandemic and what are estimates for post-pandemic. Yeah, good morning, everybody. This is Trip. Um, I, I, there, there's, a, there's a grave threat to the development community. Um, you know, the, the developers need the food and beverage operators. Um, they need to amenitize their buildings, whether they're office or mixed use or or retail mall type settings f and b plays a major component and it's the one thing that has immunity uh to the amazon effect you still can't eat on the internet so it's very important um you know i think i think some of the the larger shopping center players realized this in the last two years um that they needed they, they need to increase their share or their the, the pie um, as it relates to food and beverage offerings and um, you know they're taking it a step further now where there a lot of the a lot of the shopping centers are are going to include other components such as residential hotel more experiential retail so i think you know i think we're gonna we're gonna be in a we're gonna be in a very unique situation because developers are still going to need food and beverage, and there are there's going to be a shortage of food and beverage providers under under existing economic deal terms. So I think that I think that's the segue into the next slide here, Lacey, is is to kind of talk about food halls and the food hall model. Um, food halls as a vertical within food and beverage during the pandemic have fared fairly well. Um, we've been tracking the 221 food halls across the United States during the pandemic, during the height of the first peak. Um, 
75% of the food halls remained open. Uh, the 25% that closed are ones that you'd expect, ones that were serving a, a large office population or centered around mass transit. Um, as of July, you know, 86% of the food halls are 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 open. And there's three there's three reasons for that. Number one is is it was it was a very easy pivot for food halls to transform into ghost kitchens, doing only pickup and delivery. If you think about the food hall model, right? You think about a, an operator inside of a food hall. They may they they may have three people working inside the stall, two cooking and and one at the cash register. So it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a big shift to go to go towards delivery and pickup uh, curbside pickup only. So I think I think that's number one. Number two is the economic model. The way that most of these food hall deals are structured, they're structured as percentage rent meaning they don't have this high fixed cost rent number hanging over them as most restaurants do that's the flaw right that's the flaw in the restaurant model that's been exposed here is that restaurants you know have this high fixed rent number no no control over their supply chain and they weren't able to reopen because they couldn't make rent under a food hall where they're paying a high percentage of sales as their rent the risk and reward is shared between the food hall operator and the developer. Um, and, and number three, you know, from a from a from why food halls have been able to remain open and in some cases continue to thrive, is is they're highly adaptable, right? They have a large a lot of them have large outdoor seating components, and inside the physical plant of a food hall. Uh, it was much easier to accommodate social distancing. There weren't fixed banquettes and fixed bars. Uh, much easier to 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 maintain six feet of dif distance between tables. So that food really have, important have done very well during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Trip, maybe maybe you can explain one more one more thing. Like it, it's important, I think, Trip, to explain when you say the, the percentage of sales that's going uh, to rent, let's really explain what that is, um, right? So yeah. percentage, yeah. the percentage of, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that, I, I, I apologize because we live in this world and, and um, <laughs> most, most well, of the, most of the, I'm sorry, and I also want you to explain what a ghost kitchen is next, because that's another everybody might not yep. be fully of. So both of those items. Yep. Yeah. So so yep. first let's talk about the model, the percentage rent model. So for for a stall operator to enter a food hall with their concept, they're typically they'll typically come in with a very small investment, roughly a tenth of what it would have cost them to build their own restaurant. So they can they can literally get an operation going for twenty five or forty thousand dollars. In addition to that upfront cost, they're paying between twenty and twenty five percent of their sales for rent, utilities, collective marketing, uh, collective programming efforts, and management. It's a, 
Right. Yeah, the, the management of, of the food hall and the marketing. Um, it's essentially a, you know, it, it's a, all of the services are shared. So there's great economies of scale. And um, it's been, it's, it's been something that's been well received by the chef community. Um, we think it'll be even more well received going forward if chefs will not have the stomach to go out and raise money to rebuild. We think this will be a recovery vehicle that chefs and restaurant operators will use to, to grow uh, their footprint again. Um, so it's, it's a model that, you know, the idea of a percentage rent model is, is not something that we think will just be used in the food hall setting. We think it will use in, in most F and B deals. The, you know, the idea that traditional leasing on the F for F and B's for the, and the F and B space will continue the way it has is, 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 um, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. Um, there needs to be a fundamental change in the way that these deals are structured. Well, and while we're talking about that, would also, can you address for us the ideal tenant for a food hall or how it might vary from a, a business incubator type model of um, just a chef who hasn't actually opened a restaurant yet versus an established brand that it might have two or three concepts, no less, no more than five, but an already established um, follower and base. How how do you look at those two things, and is there an ideal scenario for a food hall? Well, uh, this is Phil. I'll give a I'll give a quick answer and 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 open it up. First, we think that most successful food halls are. Uh, the agreements that exist between the vendors and the food hall are license agreements as opposed to leases. So we refer to them as, as licensees. And one of the reasons we like licenses is because it gives the food hall and the vendor maximum flexibility. Um, it is less expensive uh, to get involved with a license arrangement. It's more flexible to potentially move people in and out Sometimes you do have to move a vendor out, um, but the guidelines as to what keeps a vendor in and what uh, what might require a vendor to leave are very clear, and usually they're based upon cooperation and uh, and a minimum threshold of sales. Um, our theory, um, which is just just that, it's our theory, but it's been working, is that we like to have a a, a mix of strong local and regional groups who have uh who are known in the community um and combine that with some up-and-comers or one or two new things that the community doesn't have we believe it's important to remember that is as uh you know as aesthetically lovely as these things can be they are first and foremost businesses and they need to gain the trust of the consumer and the best way to gain the trust of the consumer is to give them something they know and and uh, will will look for. And once they trust that that's there, they'll try some new things. Um, Garrick, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I think I think the critical thing because you know we we've seen food halls evolve from being chef driven to uh, becoming more democratized. 
it still comes down to a lot of you know local small businesses with unique offerings and um you know certainly from the point of view of of just as a rebuilding mechanism um for small businesses after this i mean you know we've seen for example you guys did a food hall i think or or, or it's in development in the carolinas correct it's like a interstate food hall that basically completely different from yeah. all the rules where it's 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 more it, it's almost like a like a roadside attraction and then we've seen other things popping up in in unique places where uh, you know, I, I I know that there's a small city in Utah that that is exploring the idea right now. They're they're a big honey production area of of just making it. And this is this is like a, a five thousand person town. They they have a lot of tours and they 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 for their for their local honey businesses and and having something themed to the local uh, the local produce, the local food offerings, etc. I think just this evolution and especially spurred by COVID and the need to rebuild businesses, local businesses, that you're going to see this weird explosion, all sorts of different ways you can go with this. But it, at the core, it's still the model, you know, that developers and, and, and the tenants, you know, the licensees and the licensors, they, they both have skin in the game. It's not as adversarial as a typical tenant-landlord relationship sometimes, unfortunately, can become. Um, it's a very good point. Very good point. Yeah, I think I think what I would add for the for the municipalities on this on this webinar, as you as you talk to developers, local developers about food halls and the potential of food halls, I think the point and it was a slide a couple slides ago, is it's important to talk about the hedge, right? And food yeah, halls yeah. are a hedge, right? From a developer's standpoint, you know, the difference between having a 10,000 square foot restaurant that fails, right? And and the newspapers go up and and uh, on, the, on the glass and it takes two years to find a new tenant and then you've got to to, to come up with a new structure and a new tenant allowance that versus doing a 10,000 square foot food hall with 10 different vendors right and if the Korean barbecue guy doesn't work out you bring in you bring in the fried chicken guy right so there there's 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 a built-in hedge for the developer there's a hedge for the operator uh, meaning that that it's not as capital intensive as building their own standalone restaurant. Mm -hmm. And now there's this third hedge that, that COVID has presented in, in that these things have shown the ability to pivot to a ghost kitchen and, and function right. as primarily takeout and catering. And for those that don't know what a ghost kitchen is, a ghost kitchen is essentially a food hall without a storefront or dining room. So it's a collection of kitchens set up primarily uh, to do to do delivery, and they're typically in lower rent areas. Um, a lot of the fast food guys will set up um, will set up operations in a ghost kitchen to facilitate their delivery. Um, ghost kitchens are great. There's a lot of smart money now behind ghost kitchens. 
the challenge with a ghost with a pure ghost kitchen is that you're competing online with 2,000 other restaurants, and um, you have to figure out how to differentiate if you're not an established fast food brand. The 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 trend that we're seeing is now a ghost kitchen hybrid food hall. So a yeah. a a food hall that can operate as a ghost kitchen and a and a traditional food hall with in-person dining and a storefront. I think we'll see more of that going forward from a development standpoint. Well, there's nothing different in in this arena than what's happened in retail with the need to be omni-channel. Correct. Uh, you know, that you yeah. you have all channels open for business to drive revenues as opposed to just mm -hmm. focused on one channel alone that could be more easily disrupted. So if we if we think about that, Lacey, yeah. right, then then the thing that 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 should come back to our uh, our participants here is what this path, right, this this path toward toward economic sustainability that a lot of independent restaurants do not have, and, and by the way, folks, the independent restaurant community, you know, <laughs> they're getting so much attention and they're getting a, a lot of attention for the right reasons. But one of the things that's become very clear uh, to people who never paid attention before is that the business model of the independent restaurant does not include six to eight months of cash reserves and it does not include access to revolving lines of credit. So it would have taken a lot less than COVID to break that model down. When we look at the food hall model, and again, the model is what is important, what it brings to your community is, as Tripp pointed out, it's not just a hedge, it's a community amenity that is built for the long haul. Can't emphasize that enough. All of, all of you have been suffering through uh, really bad uh, bad economic situations where you're not, you know, there's no sales tax, there's no, nothing being purchased, there's no parking revenues being generated. That's, you know, that's a real crunch. The food hall is a path and it is a long-term sustainable path. I want to keep that in the forefront of your minds as you're considering how to advance the ball in your respective communities with amenities. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the um, experience of the food hall or restaurants in general and, and really the connection that we have with it, especially as we think about our communities in placemaking and things of that nature, building a sense of community through the emotional connection or the restaurant experience. How, what trends are you seeing there and how is the food hall the same or different from a traditional restaurant? Well, it's Phil, and I'll take a quick I'll take a quick start on this. Um, our favorite restaurants, right, are still really again places where we go, right, for for all different types of nourishment. It's you know it's it's the nourishment of um, 
uh, of the food, the nourishment of, uh, of our souls somewhat. Uh, design plays such an important role. Service plays such an important role. The, uh, rarely do we go out to, to eat um, with the goal of, of having a really bad time. <laughs> right. The goal is usually to go uh, either with your loved ones, with your friends or your business colleagues um, and to and to enjoy life. It doesn't have to be expensive. Um, I think what we've learned in food halls that are well designed and design. All of you, please, if you're going to write anything down, <laughs> design is the most critical component in the development of a food hall. Believe it or not, in the four pillars of food halls, design is first, operation is second, programming of the space is third, and fourth, oddly enough, is the food. And the reason we say that is because we have not found any pocket of America, and we have been working in almost all of the 50 states. We have not found a situation where we could not attract excellent food and beverage vendors. So we're counting on that um, in, in every environment we work in. But don't, don't skimp on the thought that gets put into design. Don't skimp on the thought that gets put into operation. And certainly don't skimp on the thought that goes into programming. Tripp, you can talk a little bit more about that. Or Garrick. Well, yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> definitely one of one of the one of the points of connecting with consumers for 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 something like this, which is all about authenticity, is it can't be cookie cutter, and and food hall designs. Obviously, there's some operational concerns, right? You have to have that right, but uh, and that 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 impacts design as well, the way it's laid out, but. You know, if you look at, say, the food hall at the Plaza Hotel in New York versus some of the food halls at college campuses, radically different. They're all about the locality, about fitting in. A lot of a lot of them are going into old historic buildings that have been long vacant. It, it's 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 part of that is the emotional connection. Um, you know, so it, it it's definitely not a cookie cutter food court situation. Uh, it's not one size fits all, but but that's that's what makes it really connect with consumers. And you know, there's one thing that just kind of came to me. You know, Trip was mentioning the different hedges. One of the ironic things about food halls is that if you do have 10%, 15% turnover in a year, it actually works to your benefit because then consumers get variety, and and they keep going back to be exposed to all these new concepts. So the, the irony is, is that, and remember, restaurant startups, Phil, I know you had the numbers, 19% failure rate typically in the first. Yeah, often it's, often it's a little over 20. And, yeah. and, you know, and I say that, that was, that was 20% failure rate in the greatest economy in the history of the United States of America. <laughs> that right. should tell you something. So there's always going to be turnover in the restaurant business, but in food halls, the turnover becomes a hedge and a positive thing. Yeah, I, I, a little Lisa, bit about Lisa, how here's how here's how I would answer your original question. It, you know, 
these food halls are meant to be community centers. Now, community centers is a dirty word right now during during COVID, um, but I don't I don't think it'll be a dirty word by the second quarter of next year. You know, these things are. If you look at in Washington D.C. where I am, the fifth highest Uber and Lyft drop off and pickup is Union Market, which is Washington D.C.'s first food hall. So, I, you know, if you if you think about optionality and how that's woven into the fabric of, of our country, the ability for a group of people to all dine together, uh, you know, at, at one table and, 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 each, and, each, and each person getting the type of cuisine that they want, you just can't do that in a traditional restaurant setting. So I, I think it's really an opportunity to bring um, a community together uh, through, through food and beverage. So what I'm curious about is, you know, for our communities that are participating in this call that say, yes, absolutely, I want a food hall in my community. I know this spot. I have this blighted building and I think the food hall is the solution to it. Where do I get started? What is the financial model? I mean, you mentioned that um, rent is a percentage of sales, but design is the first of the four pillars. So when I think about just the traditional mall across America and how challenged it is, you know, some would argue that one of the uh, threats to the mall was the expense of the common area maintenance and, and that design and how that was pushed to the tenants for rent, inflating their rent and making it difficult for uh, consumers to not be able to just pull up and easily go directly to the store that they wanted. So that's where the demalling concept is coming from. Can you talk a little bit about how the financial model or the design of a food hall is so uniquely different than our traditional mall? And if a community is interested in this, how important is the real estate of it? Is this a destination play that people come to, or do you need to first find the highest density of population and then to find where your food hall is going to be? Yeah, um, I'll start on that one. This is Trip. You know, I think there's a reason why there's only 221 food halls in the United States today. Um, there, it's it's a lot more complicated to build, to structure, to curate than a than a than a similar size restaurant. Um, you know, and but but that's the reason for our existence, right? As Colicchio Consulting, in terms of in terms of helping developers walk through that process understanding you know the market um and whether it's going to be a standalone or it's going to be an amenity as part of a larger development um so i think i i think that's number one number two um there are pitfalls right to developing these things so i think two things that we commonly see is number one uh, brokers try to traditionally structure these things the same way as as restaurant leases, and um, they'll put a five or ten year lease in place for a vendor, and that's a no no because if, you know the last thing you want is 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 an unproductive vendor taking up a stall in your food hall, or or even worse that vendor not surviving and then and then pulling out the kitchen sink in the middle of the night so. These things are the way we structure them. We do 12 to 18 month license agreements with revenue thresholds. Um, the other thing that we've seen 
you know, and there's only been a handful of failures in the food hall sector. The common thread amongst the failures is, is the single operator model. So oftentimes we'll see restaurateurs that operate multiple concepts in a city and they say, I want to get in the food hall world and I'm going to operate the pizza, the taco, the, uh, the banh mi, the ice cream. And that's a dangerous model because it takes away the hedge, right? Because inevitably what happens under that scenario is that, is that one of the concepts fails and they start focusing their attention on that. And um, it's also not, it's not authentic, right? It should be a collection, right? Of independent non-chain concepts, all kind of working, you know, under one roof. When you put all your eggs in one basket and have one operator run all the concepts, you lose that hedge. Mm -hmm. Well, and we have a couple of really good questions that you, you kind of brushed on, but maybe we can take a more specific, deeper dive. One of the questions is, have you seen any communities successfully create a food hall and a mall being redeveloped as a mixed use space? Hmm. Well, it's all happening now. Uh, as opposed to having a a uh, sort of that successful model to point to, we can point to uh, a, a terrific uh, mid-market project uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, that was built out uh, in a mixed-use area called uh, Axarban Village. Um, there is a shopping mall uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, that has a um, that has a quote food hall close quote within it, but it suffers from all of those items that we've talked about. Um, you know, sort of single operator, inauthentic uh, type of issues. Mm -hmm. um, well, if, and uh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it kind of pairs into what you're talking about right now is a couple of questions here have come up about um, incorporating a marketplace as well. Does it all need to be food only or can no. a combination of uh, farmer's market yeah. and, and uh, yeah. hotel and things of that nature? Uh, this is Phil yeah. and I'll start I'll start and, and jump out of the way. So we've learned something that's probably not going to surprise you when you think about it, is that the vendors who sell prepared foods outsell vendors who sell produce and meats and cheeses five or six to one. Now, that doesn't mean you exclude the, the produce. That doesn't mean you exclude the farmer's market. What that means is that you program for it. And that is one of the real benefits of the food hall. Tripp or Garrick, why don't you pick up on that? Because it's the programming. When I said programming was third, you know, in, in the in the pillar importance, that's the kind of thing I mean. Go ahead, Garrick. Well, I, I, I think that the model, especially what's happening in retail in general, that, you know, it hasn't happened yet. This is theoretical. I think that the model was going to expand uh, to small businesses and entrepreneurs in the retail space. Um, 
You know, I, th I think it's, we agree. It, it, it's 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 really going to be if, if you want to rebuild, especially for uh, great local entrepreneurs, this model makes a ton of sense because, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, the, the costs in startup, uh, you know, in, in the economic environment that we're going to to be in uh, emerging from COVID is that you're going to have a lot of a, a lot of great people sitting on the sidelines that don't have access to capital but this this is going to be one of the ways to reactivate an awful lot of real estate that's gone dark but it's yeah. Gonna, yeah that's right mm -hmm. uh, yeah Lacey, what i would what i would say is you know we often get that from developers right they you know they they have they their ideas that they you know because they visited Reading Terminal or Chelsea Market or West Side Market in Cleveland and they want the cheesemonger and you know the butcher the baker the candlestick maker kind of thing and we like that a lot and it's still mentioned though the reality is the prepared foods are going to drive the economics um, so you know we like to weave that stuff in and you know utilize outdoor space on the farmers market side we like to weave in um you know kind of traditional maker spaces where somebody's doing um you know maybe pure retail uh, but as a yeah. as as the permanent stalls within the food hall we know that you know the sushi guy is going to do 800,000 inside of 300 square feet and the you know the knife sharpener will do 50,000 so we have to balance that yeah, it comes back to the economics of it. Um, well, one thing I, I do want to just hit on because we're coming pretty close up on the hour and then I want to continue the conversation. But for all of our um, attendees on the call together today, especially if you are in economic development or a municipal leader, I just want to share a few examples of uh, communities that we work with at Retail Strategies and some really uh, creative and clever things that they've done to incentivize um, food halls or breweries or things of that nature. And in a lot of cases, the brewery can serve as the anchor to get that food hall started. Um, so yes. I just want to encourage you because I know we come from all different sizes here. And this first one over on the left, High Point, North Carolina, about 112,000 people there. And we've been working with them for about six, seven years. And they really wanted to bring people downtown and, and quality of life downtown. If you know High Point at all, it's all the furniture markets are down there. So very unique situation and that the majority of their downtown remains vacant on a normal basis because it's the furniture market, right? So they wanted to bring community down there. So they built a, a ball field. And now they have a 12,000 square foot food hall that's going to be under construction or developed right now. They're taking a call for vendors with this food hall. So this was High Point saying, this is what we want. We're going to incentivize it. We're going to go after it. We're going to find the developer who can pull it off. Um, McCook, Nebraska, this uh, Loot Brewery Company, I'm going to talk more about it in just a second. They have a population of 8,000. And this Loot Brewing was the recipient of a grant of about $25,000 to help them get started. But on the right, you see this Drylands Brewing Company, Lovington, New Mexico, population of 11,000. The EDC put in about $80,000 and the state put in about $100,000 to get this brewery off the ground. And the way that they did it, it was under the idea of manufacturing. That's where those grants and incentives existed because they're manufacturing beer. 
right? So really creative solution that this town of 11,000 now has an awesome brewery and restaurant that is just fantastic. Um, and then we have Phelps County, Nebraska, where the Lost Way Brewery is. And what they did here was they uh, um, offered gap financing. Um, it was the development corporation that did gap financing that paid about one third of the project. And when uh, COVID hit, obviously big challenges here. So they gave them six months of deferred payment, with no extra interest. So really generous move, but it makes these models work. It brings quality of place. I mean, it, it helps with economic development. Lake Worth, Florida is another client, or um, the CRA there gives matching grants of 50000 for improvements to restaurants, a 10000 signage grant. Um, Coleman, Alabama has a food hall. They have a population of 15000 where they incentivize their yeah. brewery to be the anchor on it. I mean, I could just go on and on. Again, this is the Phelps County, Nebraska, and this is a, a five-year initiative where they have classes that they give to entrepreneurs, and they come in and they learn how to do a very detailed business plan, and then they make their pitch to investors and where they give about a twenty-five dollars or $30,000 grant to help them get off the ground. So I wanted to share those examples with our attendees as ideas about how to get creative. If you want to get started on a food hall, what's so positive is you are talking to the experts right here on the call and you will receive a recording of today's call with a follow-up email that will have all the contact information and if this is something that you want to get started on then start with Phil Colicchio and just ask him what he thinks I mean this is what he does is consulting working with Tripp and Garrick they all work together and and consult on how do you get it started what do you have that's unique to your community but I, I think what we really need to think about is that public-private partnership and what that means right now when our restaurants are threatened, our businesses are threatened, our retail shops are threatened, then how do we stabilize them in a really unique way that is even has more attention now than it did pre-pandemic, but what's so encouraging I think this is a model that's proven um, to last. And so it's not a temporary type issue. It's something that will last and thrive far beyond the pandemic. But right now, the goal is just stabilizing the economy. And there might be really great ways to get creative with this. Um, so I, I know that was a bit of a long-winded um, <laughs> of me taking some to just share what those examples are, but I'll, I'll definitely turn it back to our panelists um, as we've had a few questions um, funnel in. Are there any questions that you see that popped out to you that you really want to take a deep dive on? Just one more thing before we um, before we go, we're about four minutes on the hour. Again, this is recorded. Great dialogue happening. We haven't had very many people drop off, so we might go about 10 minutes longer than we'd originally planned. If you need to drop off, feel free. This recording will come to you afterwards. So just want to lay that out there, but we have a lot of great questions here that we do want to answer. So I'll go ahead and turn it back over to our panelists. Yeah, this is, uh, this is I, Phil. I want to make ahead, one Trip. point. Um, just if you think about, you know, I, I don't want anybody to get scared off um, because, you know, look, the first 150 food halls that were built in the U.S., 60% of them were in were in six, you know, top 25 markets in the United States. The next 75 that were built, you know, the movement is towards secondary and tertiary markets. So 
if I look back in the past seven days, I've received calls from developers in Rogers, Arkansas, Wichita, Kansas, Hagerstown, Maryland, and Southfield, Michigan. I think we're the last four that reached out to me. You know, there you can do something great in 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 those markets. You you don't need you don't need ten or twenty thousand square feet. You can do something really mm -hmm. special inside of five to seven thousand square feet. So there no market is too small. Um, you know, I I think you know I just wanted to make that point, Bill. And that and that leads me. I, I'm going to literally flip it to Garrick because what Trip just said and what Lacey just said kind of leads to this issue that, and the additional benefit of the food hall as an amenity and its halo effect. I would like Garrick, who really understands that that component, to talk about the the inevitable halo effect that a uh, a successful food hall can bring. Well, you know, what we've seen in, in mixed-use development or even, you know, food halls in the ground floor of, say, an office building is typically it, it spurs demand to be nearby because, because that amenity, either it's for workers or for, for people living in the community, and suddenly, you know, in, in – uh, a good example is is we uh, we did a, a, a there's a building in Chicago a high rise where uh, food hall went in on the ground floor and suddenly the office guys upstairs were able to get 10% more in rents. Uh, there you know, uh, I, I think Omaha. You guys did a, a ground up Omaha project where uh, mixed use. I think there's office multifamily, correct? And then there's some retail. Yes. But the, the first yep. component they wanted to have in place was the food hall because it spurred all sorts of demand from the office users. Um, and, and that was kind of critical. And again, you know, in mixed use, since we're talking about hedges, that's, that's the way that retail is going to go. We're going to go from being purely about standalone destinations to being mixed use, dense. And, and, and it's all about the type of retail, and, and, and I know this drives Phil crazy because I, I include restaurants in there, <laughs> uh, but, but it's about the amenities, you know, we're, you know, in the age of Amazon, that's what's going to work, you know, personal needs, retail, and amenitized experience-based, uh, you know, and food and beverage is the focal point of that. It, it, it was before COVID, it'll be again, the industry. Yeah to be rebuilt and the low barrier to entry is going to mean that this yeah. is where you can get it done the fastest and, and probably in the most meaningful way. Yeah. And this is, this is where uh, it's Phil. This is where we can go off script. Right. And, and, and say a few things like, no, like number one, folks, the amenities are the key. You know, it used to be you build and then you think about amenities. Now it's amenities and build around the amenities. I am sorry for all of those people who bought into the idea that bowling alleys with flashing lights and blue cocktails were the amenity of the future, right? That's not what, that is not a sustainable type of amenity. And we have to pay attention to where our friends that fall into the millennial uh, category and the Gen Z category spend their money and they spend it on food and beverage. 
that is artisanal in nature, and they're not going to stop. And if you're going to put your economic development money anywhere on amenities, it is our humble opinion that food and beverage is your safest bet and the best bet to enhance your community. And I can't say that, uh, I can't say that about too many other components. Um, it drives, it drives sales, there's sales tax, it creates parking revenues, it creates all kinds of ancillary revenues. Um, it's easy to get behind as a, as a, as a city or a region to, um, you know, to advertise it, to feature it. Um, you know, they, it's a path, right? It's a sustainable path. And that's, that's what I want to leave you with. Yeah, can, I'll, 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 I'll do two of these questions really quick, Lacey. Typical square footage requirement range. Um, you know, look, I, I think it's shrinking. It used to be the first 150, the average square footage was around 25,000 square feet. The next 70 built, the average size was closer to 14. I think 10 to 15 is the sweet spot. Uh, but like I said, I think you can still do something great inside of five or 7,500 square feet. Do we own or operate any food halls? No, we do not. Um, we are We are owner representatives. Uh, we represent, you know, the city or the developer, um, and we go out and curate and um, and design and structure. And then I see another question. I think I think it's about outdoor food halls, and I think you know we're working on a couple of projects that are pure outdoor plays. Um, it's a relatively it's relatively more inexpensive to do, and if you if you're in a market that has that has uh, X amount of days where you can sit outside. Um, I think it's a I think it's a viable alternative um, doing more of a container type thing. Um, we've seen that work very well working on a project in Miami like that and a project in Detroit. It's amazing. Uh, the, one of the reasons I flipped it back to this map was to give a sampling of, of the national coverage that you have in the unique um projects that you've worked with um across the country so thank you for answering each, yeah. each of the about the the typical size um and what your interaction is with food halls currently and then also about taking the indoor space out and i, I do encourage all of our municipal leaders to think about that um and very seriously about reimagining public spaces um avondale is an area here in birmingham where they shut down the street and they did um walk up delivery for all the restaurants and bars and turned it into an entertainment district wildly popular and we're seeing that across the country uh port st lucie florida is a client of ours and and what they did was they took uh, three parking spaces the public spaces and reallocated it for the restaurant or the um or the retail brand right so that they could come outdoors into that um also want to encourage you as municipal leaders to think about the little things you can do um this is definitely a time of of when I look at the three buckets, you have the first bucket, which is that safety and security. And the number two is stabilizing your economy and your businesses. And number three is the psychology of it, how people are changing the way that they shop, the way they spend money. Um, ensuring consumer confidence is a big, big part of this so that people will continue to go into um, these spaces. And what you can do as a public sector is what my 
friend uh, Carolyn Gibson in El Campo, Texas did, where she supplied all of her businesses with hand sanitizer and mask, and they also did that in Wharton, Texas. So great examples of, does that make a huge difference in whether that company survives or not? Well, I'll tell you one thing it does is it encourages those entrepreneurs and those business owners. My um, sister and brother-in-law um, run an uh, they have three restaurant bars right now in Lubbock, Texas, and and it's a hard time for our business owners right now. So it's a it, I, what you can do as a municipal leader is everything that you can to help them with waiving permits, with signage, taking getting creative to take things outdoors into that space, right? And then what you can do in supplying them with the PPE or uh, the you know simple things like the hand sanitizers and mask and um, give advice about how they can do that. It just really gives them the encouragement that our entrepreneurs need right now when they're at a crossroads and feeling exhausted about the amount of effort they put into operating their location and it's a huge amenity to you um, the sales tax you receive the quality of place uh, the uniqueness to the market so we want to encourage you to really if you haven't already start that conversation with your local entrepreneurs and ask them what they need and think about food halls think about working with our consultants that we have on the line here and and how you can just really get creative uh, with solutions that are desperately needed right now any closing thoughts from our panelists before we wrap up? Lacey, I think that uh, I think what you and retail strategies do for uh, the municipalities and 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 economic development uh, leaders across the country uh, is great. I wish, frankly, I wish more. Uh, I wish more of you existed. <laughs> <laughs> because we see we see we see the need for um for signatures you know in communities and and it's clear that that you see it as well um and that those signatures those signature uh a little bit of placemaking um makes a great big difference in the long run uh in the success of uh you know, of towns, whether they're, frankly, whether it's, you know, whether it's Manhattan or whether it's Fargo, North Dakota. Um, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and yeah, absolutely. We're so fortunate to work with so many great communities and um, it's just a really rewarding and fulfilling space to celebrate in their wins and their successes and, and just really merge the worlds of what we're seeing in the um, retail and restaurant space as it relates to operations and commercial real estate and, and merge that with what our communities know. And and can do and and we just are are so fortunate to learn from them and be able to share the best practices from our partners that are across the country uh, we're currently in 36 states and just each region is in each size community is having different challenges right now and and so i'm so grateful to each of you as our panelists just it's so fun you know understanding your backgrounds and your areas of expertise to have you here in this dialogue today just extremely grateful for your time and, and just really elevating us all with knowledge. As we know, knowledge is power, and the more that we learn, the better job we can do for our citizens, for our communities, for our business owners, and for our real estate. Um, so once again, to everybody on the 
on the line. What we'll do in the follow-up email is send you the white paper that was written by this team on food halls. We'll send their contact information. You'll receive the recording and this deck, and this deck will also be available on the Retail Strategies website under resources. We have a lot of information in there, so thank you for bearing with us uh, as we've gone over the hour just slightly, so thank you for hanging with us, and stay tuned as we have more webinars coming your way. And, and again, I'm Lacey Beasley. I'm the president of Retail Strategies. If you have ideas for a webinar, something you want to learn more about, shoot me an email. It's just Lacey at RetailStrategies.com. Let me know how we can help you right now as we all elevate each other to get through this difficult time. So thank you all. Wishing you a very successful week. And we will talk again soon on the next webinar coming up next month. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks. you.